that was fun. Yeah. Wasn't it? Good stuff, man. It's always good. Yeah, it's it's just neat to uh, see how God works. Because um, I've noticed here we've been uh, in existence for five years. Uh, we just celebrated that last month. And uh, it's kind of funny. God does this thing where um, there's like a group of people, five, ten people come to Christ. And then there's this stretch where, you know, for a few months where nobody is, it allows us to kind of get those people connected in and getting to know who they are. And uh, one of the things we do around here is if, when a person places their faith in Christ, we try to get some other Christians uh, to meet with them and just spend time with them and, and encourage them in their uh, in this new relationship they have with God, which, you know, for a lot of people who don't have any clue what church is all about, it's like, how do we keep, how do we have a relationship with God, you know? And so we... Um, try to help them that way. And then we'll have another group of like five or ten people come to Christ. So since the beginning of January, we've had about ten people accept Christ, and a number of them got baptized today. Um, and we had a pocket of people uh, come to Christ right before Christmas. So just really neat to see how God works, and uh, so thankful for that. Well, you know, as we say, lives transformed uh, for eternity. But um, throw a question at you. Can I get things rolling, get your mind thinking? So you ever, um, you ever wanted to be great? You know, or at least to have people think that you're great? Uh, you know, when I was growing up, I always thought it would be pretty cool to be like a, uh, a known football player. Now, truth be told, I, I never played organized football because my parents, well, that's a whole other story. Um, they, they didn't want us playing organized sports, and they had the reasons for it. But anyways, I tried to sneak in uh, to football, and my mom found out, and it's a big whole thing, and I won't go into it. But a lot of my problems today are... <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just so, um, let's just talk. Anyways, no, so I always had this idea. It would be great, you know, to do that. And so maybe it's not that you wanted to be great or have other people think that you're great, but maybe it's um, the fact that you at least want to be appreciated, you know, honored, um, to be um, recognized for being the awesome person that you are and how you are to your family and friends and, and type of thing. Uh, and that desire actually is in all of us. I think we can all relate to that, that there is that desire to want to be needed, to want to be appreciated. But the difficulty is when we expect that from other people, um, that's never satisfied in us. Um, because a person can actually tell you that they appreciate you. Someone, a boss can tell you, hey, good job, or have you in for an evaluation and you actually get a raise because of that, or, you know, whatever. But then a couple months down the road, and now you're wondering, does my boss appreciate me, or does my spouse appreciate me, do my kids appreciate me? And we, 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 it's just like a never-satisfying desire. And it's interesting because that need... This idea of needing to be wanted or appreciated or however you want to phrase it is actually built into us. God, who's created us, created us in his image, not an image in the sense that he needs anything from us. He doesn't. He is complete in who he is. But he's built it into us. And so like with Adam and Eve, when they were first created, they were perfect. And so they understood the relationship with God. They, they knew him. Um, they were uh, good with him. He was good with them. They hadn't sinned yet. And so they knew they mattered to God. They, they knew that he cared about them, that um, he was going to provide for them, that he wanted them around. But then 
things kind of went haywire because God doesn't want robots. God doesn't want to force himself on people. So he gives Adam and Eve and he gave us this idea of free will that we can choose for ourselves if we want to how we're going to do life. And so Adam and Eve, they chose that they decided they wanted to be God, the God of life. They wanted to be the ones responsible to take care of themselves. They wanted to be responsible to, to do what is good and to be able to deal with whatever evil came their way. And when they did that, everything turned up on its head. Because no longer, because they sinned, no longer were they connected relationally with God. God can't have sin in his presence. And so then, rather than g- gaining that acceptance and gaining that um, realization that they mattered from God, they looked at each other to get that. And since that time, man and women, mankind has done that. If we've looked to other people to make us feel like we're wanted, to make us feel like, we're, um, like we matter. But again, it can't be met by other humans. It's something that God put into us so that we would reconnect with Him. It's, it's a God-sized void in our lives, and only God can fill that. He's the one who's created us and designed us. So turn to Mark chapter 10 and verse 32. It's page 1008 if you're using the Bible. Uh, there in the seats. <clears throat> and today we're on the road to the cross. So we're in a series called Road to the Cross. We're walking with Jesus and the disciples and the crowd as he heads towards Jerusalem. And in this conversation, we're not hitting everything he says, but we're hitting key things. Um, and so as he uh, heads to Jerusalem, he's, he's giving us the understanding of how we can reconnect with God and how we can experience him meeting that need of, of being wanted or of, of mattering to somebody. So I'm just going to go right into it and start reading this. Now, um, just I like to explain this from time to time. If you're a first-time attender with us, which by the way, welcome. Great to have you here. Love seeing new faces. Not that the old faces are so bad. They're pretty good. Just new faces, always good. But what I do is I, uh, <clears throat> I'm not a real smart person. And so when I read the Bible, I, I, I slow down and I kind of, I, I ask questions of it and I um, bold words, so that because like the impor- important words, and so I thought one time, hey, this would probably be good for everybody in our church, especially people like me who are not so uh, bright, that you know we can kind of read this and, and maybe gain a little more insight as we're kind of focusing in on certain words. So if this helps you, great. If it doesn't, that's fine too. Um, I'm just it's free. I don't charge you for it, so that's good. Anyway, so so this is happening in the middle of this this road to Jerusalem. Some things have been happening. And now they're continuing on. And so he's talking about it's Jesus, the disciples, and a crowd of people, right? So they were on the road up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. So we get this picture that even though Jesus is going to be going to the cross, he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be beaten, he's going to be put on a cross, he's going to die a horrific death. He also says he's going to rise again, but the disciples don't seem to remember that every time he says it. And so, but he's, he's the one in the lead, you know, it's not the disciples going, let's go, let's go. And he's back there, oh, yeah, I'm going to have to die here soon, so I'm going to kind of hang out here in the back. No, he's the one in, in the lead. He's heading there, and they're trying to keep up with him. And they, speaking of the disciples, were amazed. And those who followed, which would be the crowd, were fearful. So now why were they amazed, and why were the crowd fearful? Well, if you were to go back, we're not going to do this, but if you were to go back and read the, the previous verses... 
Jesus just got done talking to a rich man, and the rich, and the rich man says, hey, how do I get into heaven? And Jesus says, well, here's what you got to do. You got to sell all your, get rid of everything you have, sell it all and give it to the poor. And then you can get into heaven. And so this guy is like, mm, thanks, but no. And he walks away. And so what Jesus was saying there, Jesus was not trying to say, hey, sell everything. And by selling everything, that good work of selling everything, you get to go to heaven. He was trying to get at the guy's heart. The guy was saying, I trust this world. I trust what I can get out of this world to be what will get me through this world. And so that's not what salvation is. That's not how you get to heaven. You get to heaven by trusting God and what God says we're supposed to do in this world. Namely, first, trusting in Christ. And so he says, he says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So just, if you've got a cartoon mind, you know, think of what a camel looks like. One or two hump, doesn't matter. Through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. That's what he's saying. Yeah, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so to get to heaven, it's something that God has to do. And then he goes on and says to, to the disciples, hey, listen, if you give up everything, realize that you're going to get a hundred times more of whatever it is you've given up. And so they're probably thinking, hey, that's pretty good. I like that. It's a good investment. But he also went on and said, and by the way, you'll be persecuted, uh, but then you'll get to go to heaven. And so they have this on their mind as they're walking down the road. They're also have on their mind the fact that Jesus is making a beeline for Jerusalem. He's the one who's going to be killed. You know, it's kind of an unusual thing that somebody would do that. The crowd, uh, they haven't heard everything that Jesus is saying, but they certainly heard about the rich man. And they're thinking, man, if the rich can't get to heaven, because see, back in the first century, they thought, well, if a person is rich, that means God is favoring them, that God's giving them wealth because he favors them. But Jesus just said that if you're, if you're a rich person and you don't give up everything, you're not going to go to heaven. And so they're probably thinking to themselves, I'm not rich. You know, how, how do I make it in? And so they're, they're fearful. They probably also know that the Pharisees don't like Jesus. They know that Jesus is going to probably have some difficult times. Everywhere he's gone, the religious leaders in the area have cracked down on him. And so they were probably fearful of that. Well, let's, let's continue on. So again, so this is, this is the third time Jesus has told him this on his road to Jerusalem. Obviously, the disciples are kind of like us. You know, we need to hear it a few times. You know what I'm saying, right, Bill? So anyways, uh, he, um, sorry, it didn't come out. That shouldn't have come out. So Bill said, hey, what are you wearing shorts for? I said, well, my mentor has really rubbed off on me. And the, so, anyways, and again, for the third time, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, speaking of himself, will be delivered to the chief priests and, and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, back in the first century, um, the Jews were oppressed by Rome. So Rome was in charge, and only Rome could put somebody to death. And I think I mentioned this last week. In, in Jesus' lifetime, there's an estimate that over 30,000 Jewish people uh, were actually crucified by Rome. Um, so they knew exactly what he was talking about. And they will mock him and spit on him. Anybody ever been spit on? Like, like somebody who's uh, angry at you and spit on you? I, that happened to me one time. And then my brothers found out, and that was the end of that one. But anyways, uh, he spit on me. Boom, boom, boom. Anyways, 
I'm not saying that's how you should do that. I'm just, I'm just telling you what history was. I'm not saying do it, don't do it. I'm just saying. Anyways, back to this. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. So that's what they're going to do. And on, thir- on three days later, he is going to rise again. James and John, two sons of Zebedee, in other words, two of his disciples, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Which, you know, probably parentheses there, graciously says that. They said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in glory. So what they're saying is, Hey, when we get to heaven, um, we want you, we, you made the choice. <laughs> But we want one of us on your right and one of us on your left. Okay? But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And so he's talking about his suffering there. That's what the cup means. Or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And he's talking about his crucifixion. Now, we're not saying that Jesus got dunked underwater. All right? So the word in Greek, baptizo, means to be immersed, to be submerged. So you, you can have baptism by water, which is what we're doing, but he's talking about the fact that he's going to be immersed in death. He's going to be fully dead. Okay, it's kind of what he's shooting for there. They said to him, we are able. I couldn't find a little shocked emoji, so I wrote it in. Just so you have to picture at this point, they're saying they can handle what he's going to go through. So then we shall go shocked emoji. Yeah. Anyways. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. You know, double emoji right there. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Understanding that God's going to do something there. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Kind of like what we're probably thinking. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, and he's talking specifically to the Roman leaders at this point, lorded over them. So those who get into power, those who are in seats of honor, uh, positions of authority, when, as men, with man's, the way man thinks, he, they're going to rule over people. That's not a good thing, by the way. And their great men exercise authority over them. It has this word of oppressing people. All right? But it is not this way among you, among followers of Jesus or Christians. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first or prominent among you shall be slave of all. For even a son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And how did he do that? And to give his life a ransom for many. He paid the ransom price. He freed us from our sin. That's what that word ransom means. So it's, it's paying the price for either a slave or a prisoner of war or freeing somebody from an obligation. In this case, it's freeing us from our obligation, in a sense, to sin, its power, and its uh, eternal death sentence. So it's times like this, right, where we kind of look at the disciples and go, boy, they make me feel good, yeah, right? Because they, they are responding to Jesus like we often do. You know, we kind of get the wrong picture of what he's saying. I mean, there's a lot of people, I, I talk to a lot of people and a lot of people have a wrong understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, what he expects. You know, they got this whole list of things that this is how God is, and this is what God expects of us, and it's all wrong. And the disciples who are walking with Jesus, God the Son, they're still getting it wrong. So we should feel pretty good about that. But Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to die this horrific death for the disciples, for the crowds, for you and for me. But James and John, what they're thinking about is, 
okay, when all that happens, how do we get in there? And, you know, I think we should get, you know, be prominent in this kingdom. You know, we should be, when we get to heaven, people should know who we are and, and what we're doing. People should know that we actually matter. And so they want these seats of, of honor and authority. So what's, uh, what is Jesus saying in his response to John and James? And then we're going to talk about what it matters. So here's what Jesus is saying. I've just kind of summarized it. So what's Jesus said, because that's what we're doing, what Jesus said and why it matters. What Jesus said is greatness is achieved through serving others. So greatness, prominence, or being honored by God happens uh, for those who are serving. It's achieved through serving other people. Now, I have to understand something. Who's Jesus talking to? He's pulled the disciples aside. He's talking to the disciples. He's not talking to the crowd in general. He's not saying, as long as you serve, I mean, you can be an atheist, and as long as you serve, then you're going to have, be honored by God. He's not, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, disciples, who we've learned two weeks ago, they have now confessed that they believe that Jesus is God and that he is the deliverer, the deliverer of Israel, but also the deliverer of their sins. So they have taken a step to confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior, in other words. So these are his followers. We call them disciples. Later they become apostles. Later they're called Christians. And today we are Christians. We are modern day disciples. And so what he's saying here is that if you have placed your faith in Christ and you are sacrificially serving, so there's two parts to it, then it's those individuals that are considered great, those who are going to be honored in some way, appreciated by God. He's not saying anything about heaven. Heaven is ours because we place our faith in Christ. There's, there's this concept in the New Testament where God's going to honor us or reward us over and above salvation. We don't understand the whole concept of it, but I mean, awesome, we get to go to heaven and then also he, he does some other honoring. So it's, he's kind of talking about here, so it's only followers of Christ who are sacrificially serving. So what does it mean by great? Well, in Greek, this word means megas. We get our word mega, not maga, mega. Uh, and it means to be uh, superior in importance. So basically it just means to be important, to be considered important, to, uh, to be honored. So Jesus, here's a, here's a cool thing. Jesus isn't condemning the desire to be great or to be um, important or to be known. He is condemning the motivation behind it. See, James and John, they're not thinking about God or Jesus making God or Jesus look better. They're thinking, how can we look better? How can when we get to heaven, how can we show everybody that, yep, we're the ones being honored up here, all right? And he's also clarifying the difference between man's definition of greatness and God's definition of greatness, because that's important. Now, he had to do this because, again, the disciples, the guys who are going to lead the church or start the church rolling, they were thinking like their old selves. If they continue to think this way and then became leaders of the church, they would then lead a church from their own selfish perspective and what Jesus tells us, when that happens, they begin to rule over people in a negative way. They begin to oppress people. We see this all the time in religion. 
We see this all the time in politics. People get into power, and what happens? Rules for you, for how they rules for thee, but not for me. We see this all the time. Sadly, in religion and in politics. And so he needed to get these guys back on track. They needed to get refocus what's their purpose for being on this earth as followers of Christ. See, what was happening, James and John were showing that they were, they were motivated by self. They were self-serving. And despite what Jesus has been saying for, for you know, at least three times, the fact that he was going to be killed, James and John weren't getting it. And, and they were um, angling, in a sense, for, for positions of authority. They were looking what they could get out of Jesus. They weren't see, serving Jesus they were looking, how can we get something out of him? And they looked at all, you know, because again, he just said, if you sacrifice everything, I'll give you a hundred times more. And again, there's a whole, you know, lesson in there that we're not going to get into, but it's more than what you're just sitting on the surface. And so they're probably thinking, man, we've given up everything. We've given up our families. He, he deserves to reward us this way. We're, in fact, we probably gave up, gave up more than the other disciples. Therefore, that's why we should be sitting in seats of honor. And other people should honor them. And as I said before, this is unusual. The disciples have already done this. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus says, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And then Peter goes, no, 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 you're not going to do that. Nope, we're not going to let that happen. We talked about this two weeks ago. And Jesus says, well, you're thinking like a man. You're not thinking like God wants you to think. You're thinking like Satan, actually. Get behind me, Satan. That's what he means by that. And in Mark 9.31, he says this again. And then the disciples end up debating with each other and arguing with each other. Who's going to be the greatest? Who will be the greatest in the, in the kingdom, in heaven? You've got to give credit to James and John. They believe Jesus is going to win. They believe they're going to be in heaven with him. So that's, that's good. But look how self-serving motivation impacted their actions. First of all, they're conniving. So Jesus is walking ahead. They're walking with the disciples. The 12 of them are walking along. The crowds are kind of mingling around. And so what they're doing is they're kind of like talking, hey, Jesus, now that, because they've obviously talked about this before. Hey, now that's probably a good time, right? We're getting close to Jerusalem. Yeah. So then they're kind of like looking at the tent and, you know, look over there. You know, and they, go, they go running up to Jesus. But it, it, they've separated themselves from the ten to go talk to Jesus. And so they're, they're conniving. They don't want the other disciples to know what they're talking about. Why? Because it would probably get them upset. Well, actually, we find that out to be the case. We'll talk about it in a, bit, in a minute. Secondly, they're demanding. They say, do for us whatever we ask of you. And then they say, and then Jesus is gracious, and then they say, grant us. Grant is an aorist imperative. In other words, it's a command. James and John are talking to God the Son, Jesus Christ, and they are demanding of him to do something for them. They're saying, make this decision for us. Yeah. I mean, that's a scary place to be standing. The next one, they're, they're pretentious. Now, I never use that word. I was in the thesaurus trying to figure out a word to fit what this was, and pretentious came up. So forgive me, um, it's kind of a big word, uh, pretentious. In other words, they wanted others to see their importance. They wanted to be up in these seats in heaven so other people could see how important they were. They were arrogant. They evidently thought that their service was far better than the other 
tens or anybody else's. They were boastful. They said they could handle Jesus' suffering and crucifixion. Yikes, they knew what a crucifixion was. What were they thinking? They're being boastful. Now, Jesus did tell them, yeah, you're going to drink my cup and you're going to uh, be a part of my baptism. What he meant by that, he was predicting the fact that, yes, they would suffer for following Christ and they would be put to death for following Christ. The only one who wasn't a martyr, the only one who didn't die for the faith was John. And John was exiled to Patmos, an island, uh, where thankfully he was able to continue to write scripture, but you know, he didn't really have impact in that way and was in that sense as an older man. And so he says, yeah, you're going to experience that. And then the last thing, they're divisive. When they did that, the other disciples were indignant. Indignant means nuts. We didn't get there before he did. They all had the same idea. They all thought we should be prominent in heaven with Jesus. They're just bummed because they beat him to it. And now they're all getting scolded rebuked by Jesus, as the Bible says. So as his argument begins among the disciples, Jesus pulls them to side. The crowd doesn't need to know about this. The crowd doesn't need to see this right now. I need to talk with my future leaders of the church. And he says, a self-serving path to greatness, we can see it in man. We see it in the Roman authorities. Like I said, we see it, sadly, in some religions and denominations, and we see it in our politicians where when they do that, they rule over people. They oppress people. This is not how God defines greatness. This is not the kind of leaders God wants in his church, nor is it the kind of Christian that God honors. True followers of Jesus aren't motivated by self. We're not here to impress others, to oppress others, to control others. True followers of Jesus are motivated by Jesus Christ himself. And like him, we are others serving. We seek to serve others. God's definition of greatness is based on a Christian's willingness to sacrificially serve other people. God's example for greatness is Jesus Christ, God the Son. God, 100% God, 100% man. Jesus Christ, who came to serve you and me, not to be our servant, but to serve us. And how did he serve us? He paid the eternal ransom price for our sin. See, without Jesus doing what he did, without God the Son becoming man in order to die for man, we would end up having to somehow solve our sin problem with God. The problem is God is infinite and he's eternal. Our sin is an infinite amount of sin. Our sin is eternal. And so that's why the judgment becomes eternal. Why is it judgment in hell? Because God is the one who decided it. He's the creator. He can choose how this world operates. But God doesn't send anybody to hell. God says, listen, I've offered you a way out. I've paid the ransom price. You need to decide whether you want me to pay it for you. It's there. I just need to make the transaction happen. And too many people, I got it. I'll take it from here, Adam and Eve. You know, I'm doing it. I'll do it on my own. So he came to serve us by one, dying on the cross for us, dying our eternal death for us. But he also serves us by showing us 
because he's 100% human, how does a human being who is in relationship with God, how do they live life? This, to me, is the hardest thing for any of us who are Christians to grab hold of, especially those who have, have um, come to Christ like recently. They're just kind of newer believers. Because a lot of the people in our church, anyways, who are coming to Christ don't really have any church background. They, they don't know the churchy language. They don't have Christianese, you know, locked down. In fact, the lobby at times, it's, you know, the conversations that are going on, it's, you know, pretty, whoa, I haven't heard that word before in church for a long time. You know, that kind of, I mean, it's fun to, to listen to, but they, they just don't know. And so then we're, we try to get people around them and help them understand, because those of us who have maybe been a Christian for a little bit longer, hey, this is what the Bible says, and you need to be in the Bible, reading the Bible, and then God, as you do that, he starts connecting the dots. It's really cool how that happens, and and then you start understanding how you should change and do life. But a lot of times, they're just so focused on how they used to do life, and like, this is such a weird way of doing life. It doesn't make any sense. How does this work? That they decide that they don't really want to do it. Then we look at Jesus, and we say, okay, how did Jesus follow God? How does Paul and Peter and all these apostles who followed Jesus, how do they say to follow Jesus? And then we do those things. It may not make sense, but it's the way out of our mess because God is the one who said this is how life should be lived and this is what's going to happen if you do life my way. And so we, we see him as our example. And so as he died, we die to ourselves. We die the way we think. We die the way we think we should respond. And we start learning from God's word. We're not perfect. We fail. But we begin more and more learning what God says about how we should think how we should respond, and then he begins to work in us to allow us to do that. And then our messes oftentimes get fixed. We're not coming to him to fix our spouse. We're not coming to him to fix everything. We're coming to him to fix us, if you want to put it that way. And then as we change, then all of a sudden, wow, he just start working in people's lives, and things begin to change. So then the big question is, why does it matter today? So that's what Jesus said. Why does it matter today? Well, first of all, some of you here this morning, uh, we would say non-Christians. It just means that you have, uh, haven't come to a point in your life where you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. I know there are people who call themselves Christians, and they have a definition of what a Christian is, but the Bible tells us that a Christian is somebody who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ for, the salvation, uh, for their salvation. And so those who haven't, we, we just say non-Christians. Um, and so f- for you, why this matters is, Because God who created you, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, can't explain it, don't understand how it works, but he's God. So I better not be able to explain God, at least not everything about him, right? So God, the one who created you, when God spoke and created, God the Son is the one who speaks. And so God the Son created Adam and Eve, man, in in his image. And so all of us, We've all been created in his image in the sense that we can think, we have emotions, we can rationalize, we can, we can just do a bunch of things. We can be in relationship with him. That's why he made us this way. So we're not, we're not dogs, we're not cats, we're not lizards. We're humans created in the image of God. And so because we've sinned, we're separated from him, as I mentioned before. And we will be separated for eternity unless 
unless he does something because he's the only one who's eternal. He's the only one that's infinitely powerful. And so he did what only he could do. God his son becomes man, lives a perfect life, and he dies our eternal death. Only God could do something like that. And so then we come to him and we say, I can't, I can't save myself. And we say, I need you to forgive me of my sins. And I'm trusting what you said. You said that God the Son, Jesus Christ, died for me. I'm trusting you on that. I'm, I'm putting my entire spiritual well-being on you. And I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins by trusting in Christ. And then he gives us the knowledge as we read the Bible because his Holy Spirit is now living in us. And as his Holy Spirit is in us, his Holy Spirit not only allows us to be adopted into God's family, but then he gives us understanding from God's word. Then he gives us the power we need as we pray and ask for it to actually do life the way he calls us to do it. He's promised to to provide and protect us through that process. He's not a genie. He's not someone we come to and say, well, now that I've come to you, now I want you to do all this for me. It's not James and John. It's us coming to him saying, I'm going to do life your way now. Now that I'm in relationship, I'm going to do life your way. I'm going to trust you that doing life this way, even though it seems crazy to me, that this is going to help me become more like Jesus. And then when he does that, it's, like I said, it's like it starts impacting other people's lives. And marriages do get transformed and changed and Families get healed up and people's job situations do change. Not necessarily the job changes, but perspective changes. And then when you die, you get to go to heaven, which is awesome. And for Christians, again, God considers those who serve, those who sacrificially serve, those who give up their life, their dreams, their ways of how they think they should do life, Christians who do that and, and do that for the sake of Christ and to serve other people, those are the ones that God says are great. Do you want to be great? Do you want God to, however he's going to honor you, to honor you, however he wants to honor you? You're not going to tell him how he should, but however he wants to, well then, for for Christ and for others, serve them. Do what God's called you to do. So what are the takeaways? First one is this. Again, if you're a person here this morning and if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, your takeaway should be, man, I need that. And you know if you need it. You're, in fact, how God operates is that God's laying it on your heart and your mind. You need, I need this. You may reject it. That's up to you. That's fine. And I'm I'm not going to force you into it. God won't force you into it. But God is offering you a restored relationship with him. He's offering to then come into your life and give you the power and the wisdom and the sermon, everything you needed to go through this life because he's adopted you into his family. And then when you die, not an angel, not a, a past relative, God himself, God the Holy Spirit, will take you to heaven. And that's what he's offering you. And here's what it takes on your, play, on your part. Simply trust that. Trust him. The way you do that is that you simply admit ABCs. We do it real simple around here. Again, I'm not a very complex person. Admit that you're a sinner and that you need him to save you. And you just have that conversation with him. 
and, and tell him that you believe. And believe is not just a mental assent or like, yeah, I believe there's a guy named Jesus who lived. You know, history tells us that. But you believe, you're, you're entrusting yourselves into the hands of, you are um, you're saying, I want you to take care of my spiritual well-being. And then you confess that. You just have a conversation with God. We, we call it prayer, but it's just a conversation with God. So here's what I like to do is go ahead and close your eyes. And if you're here this morning, you're like, man, I, I need that. Again, if you're, if you're here this morning, you're like, you know, I don't need it. That's fine. But if you're here and you're saying, man, I need that. I need to know that I know I matter to God, but now I want to have that relationship with him. I know he loves me. And so if that's you this morning and you want to establish that relationship, I want God to forgive you of your sins and restore your relationship with him then I'm just going to lead you in a prayer. The prayer doesn't save you. I'm not saving you. I'm just giving you the words to say your heart to God's heart. And you say simply something along these lines, God, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I'm separated from you. But I know and I believe I'm trusting you when you say Jesus died in my place. I ask you to forgive me of my sins and I'm trusting in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me your Holy Spirit. Thank you for making me your child. In Jesus' name, amen. Just keep your eyes closed. If, if you prayed that prayer, I'd love to know it. In fact, we've got this little packet that we can even hand to you as you're heading out kind of help you get things rolling in that. But if you've prayed that prayer, uh, would you just slip your hand up real quick and hold it up and let us know? Thanks. 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 Appreciate that. Thanks. Okay, two more. Thanks. Anybody else? Did you just have a conversation with God? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for um, this morning, and I thank you for uh, your impact in our lives and for those that raised their hand to say that they pray to accept you as your Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, uh, as you say in your word, that you confirm with our spirit, your Holy Spirit confirms to our spirit that we're a child of God. And I pray that you would do that in the lives of those that indicated salvation this morning, that they prayed to accept you as their Lord and Savior. Thank you so much for continuing to change people's lives. Praising in Christ's name. Amen. But the band comes up. Uh, Christians, your takeaway pretty obvious that we need to serve others sacrificially. Now, why do we do that? Well, we don't do it to get saved because Jesus already saved us. We do it to be like Jesus, to demonstrate to other people who God is, what God is like, what Jesus is like. And so as we do life God's way and as we serve other people, then they're going to have a question or two for us, most likely. And then we can introduce them to Jesus Christ. We can share with them the relationship that he's offering them, the forgiveness of sins. And so that's what we do. And then when we get to heaven, God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Because we're doing our life on mission the way Jesus Christ did his life. Logan.